Thank you for connecting to the Bethany Chapel Sermon Link. Our prayer is that you will find the following sermon helpful and inspiring for your spiritual journey. If you are a visitor to this resource, or if you've not attended our church, we would love to meet you in person. Our vision at Bethany Chapel is opening doors to God's truth and love. God bless you as you listen. Uh, We're finishing up our series in the book of Daniel. I've entitled our message, The Comeback. The end is near, it's coming to a theater near you or right into your own living room. As of this writing, over 250 end-of-the-world movies have been produced, with more than 100 appearing since 2000. The pace of apocalyptic drama shows no sign of slowing down. The number of apocalypse-themed movies from 2000 to 2009 doubled over the previous decade. It is on pace to double again by the end of this decade. In the past few years, you could have seen the following end-of-the-world films. Tomorrowland, Terminator Genesis, San Andreas, and Mad Max Fury Road, to name a few. The first end-of-the-world movie was the appropriately named 1916 Danish film, The End of the World, featuring a near miss by a comet which triggers worldwide natural disasters and social upheaval. The Doom from Space theme got a restart, When Worlds Collide, 1951, with the planet-killing heavenly body being a rogue star in a collision course with Earth. The asteroid apocalypse concept then lay relatively dormant until Deep Impact, and of course, everyone's favorite, Armageddon. Bruce Willis, Liv Tyler, never mind. Never mind, I'll I'll talk about something later that you've all seen. All right, a variation of the doom from space scenario, the alien invasion apocalypse got a classic start in 1953 with the film version of H.G. Wells' novel, The War of the Worlds. I remember reading that book when I was young and being quite terrified. Spielberg helped remake that film in 2005. Then there was the blockbuster Independence Day 1996, which features a horde of alien barbarians roaming the galaxy to plunder planets for their resources. The most popular world-ending scenario for the last few years has been zombie apocalypse. There's also been Cormac McCarthy's The Road, Susan Collins' The Hunger Games. That is a twisted set of movies. Brad Pitt's World War Z, and the list goes on and on. People are fascinated with the genre. It's becoming increasingly more and more popular uh, in Hollywood. And it's not going away. In fact, I think global warming fears, those kinds of issues are going to spark a lot of similar themes moving forward. What you don't want to do when it comes to the end of the world is to predict real events that don't come true, like this. On a balmy January Saturday morning, an alert warning of nuclear doom was erroneously sent to millions of people in the state of Hawaii. This was what they heard. Ballistic missile threat inbound to Hawaii. Seek immediate shelter. This is not a drill. Those were the words that flashed on cell phones and TVs across the state, the result of a gaffe by an employee of the Hawaii Emergency Management Agency, who's now working in northern Alaska, and only in the winter. Selected the wrong option in the text-based drop-down menu. Though the agency eventually issued a correction, residents and tourists as well as Hawaiian natives tracking the impending disaster on the mainland in real time on social media criticized the government for taking 38 minutes to retract that text. If it was a mistake and someone pushed a button they shouldn't have pushed, why the 38-minute delay? That's a politician asking that. Why don't we have a better fail-safe? 
The employee who made the mistake has expressed profound regret for the mistake, but the blunder has since been overshadowed by the obvious, ominous, hypothetical, what if the threat had been real? In July of 2017, news reports confirmed Hawaii as the first U.S. state with an attack warning system designed to detect nuclear threats. The latest development shook the public's trust in its effectiveness. So you don't want to be running around saying, the sky is falling, and it doesn't happen. And you know who's guilty of that? Christianity to some degree. And now hear me out before you tar and feather me. The apostles expected Jesus' return in their lifetime, didn't they? All right, let's be honest. In their lifetime, in the first century, they expected Jesus' return. Many of you grew up in churches that were hosting prophecy conferences. Some of you probably remember them. I'm guessing that Bethany Chapel might have hosted some. I remember during the Gulf War, the early 90s, 1991, when I was 12, in 1991, when I was 12, in middle school, and we were watching the news, Saddam Hussein said that he wanted to restore the old Babylonian empire. Some of you remember that? Those were his words. He wanted to restore the old Babylonian empire. Christians lit their hair on fire and were talking about Jesus coming. This is it. It's the end. And what we saw in the sky those nights was not Jesus Christ, but a missile bombardment from ships that the U.S. owned. I remember in 1993 when I was a pastor at 14, <laughs> a young man coming into my office, and I was, the church was really small at that time. We desperately needed people. But we didn't need him. He was telling me how the signs were all pointing to and some dating method had pointed to that Jesus was like coming. And it was, I think it was gonna be within the next number of months or next year or so. And, and he didn't. He's late. In 1843, there was a pastor named William Miller. William Miller was a pastor, I believe, in the East Coast. Uh, I believe in Vermont, actually, in the U.S., 1843 through 1844, based on the book of Daniel and his really erroneous interpretation of the book of Daniel, he believed Jesus was coming in 1843 to 1844. And he had like somewhere between 50,000 and a half million followers. And people were making decisions about their lives based on the fact that Jesus is coming in 1843, which would have been great because we could have avoided the Civil War back in the States. But Jesus didn't come. And my understanding is a lot of people who are followers of William Miller sort of abandoned Christianity altogether after that. So what should our expectation be of the end of the world as we know it? And how do we avoid the extremes that you see in our sort of, in our, in our camp? How do you avoid the extremes of, did you see the news? I mean, it's gonna happen now. Jesus is coming or the opposite extreme, it just isn't relevant. You know, he's 2,000 years late as it is. Doesn't really matter. We're gonna talk about that today. Daniel chapter 12 is on page 640 in the Bible in front of you. Page 640. And we're gonna read all of Daniel chapter 12. 
But Daniel chapter 12 is a part of a literary unit that is chapter 11 and 12, the whole vision. I did not think we could read all of that because all we'd be doing is reading the passage and not telling you about it then. So I had to make a choice. Daniel chapter 12, page 640. Now at that time, so up until now, he's summarized a ton of future prophecy which we see as history in Daniel chapter 11. And he gets to the point where like, Terrible things are happening, and the Antichrist is doing nasty stuff, especially in the Middle East. Then, now at that time, Michael, the great prince, who stands guard over the sons of your people, that would be Israel, will arise. And there will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, he's talking about Israel, everyone who is found written in the book will be rescued. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake. He's talking about the resurrection. Those to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. Those who have insight will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven, and those who lead the many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But as for you, Daniel, conceal these words and seal up the book until the end of time. Many will go back and forth and knowledge will increase. And then I, Daniel, looked and behold, two others were standing, one on this bank of the river and the other on that bank of the river. One said to the man dressed in linen who was above the waters of the river, how long will it be until the end of these wonders? I heard the man dressed in linen who was above the waters of the river as he raised his right hand and his left toward heaven and swore by him who lives forever that it would be for a time, time, and half a time. And as soon as they finish shattering the power of the holy people, all these events will be completed. As for me, I heard but could not understand, so I said, my Lord, what will be the outcome of these events? And he said, go your way, Daniel, for these words are concealed and sealed up until the end time. Many will be purged, purified, and refined, but the wicked will act wickedly, and none of the wicked will understand, but those who have insight will understand. From the time that the regular sacrifice is abolished and the abomination of desolation is set up, there will be 1,290 days. How blessed is he who keeps waiting and attains to the 1,335 days. But as for you, go your way to the end. Then you will enter into rest and rise again for your allotted portion at the end of the age." Well, that was really clear, wasn't it? Glad we we can just pray now. Wrap this right up. All right, so Daniel's chapter 10 through 12 are a literary unit. Chapter 10 is about the angelic conflict I talked about last week. But chapters 11 and 12 contain this vision that Daniel gets directly from an angel as he's standing on a riverbank and his friends boogied out when they got concerned about what was going on around them. I want to remind us of the context. We can only do about a 10,000-foot view here unless you want to be here till 2.30, but I have an appointment at 2.30, so we're going to do the 10,000-foot view here. The context, Daniel had been captured and deported as a young man, probably in his teens. He's sort of, uh, the Babylonian Empire did this with young people. They'd sort of assimilate them, get them to worship their gods, give them new names, and then hopefully Israel and other nations in the future would not revolt. But he's a Jew, and he's in foreign land. And so natural doubt arose as to whether God was in control anymore and whether God would, would keep his promises to Israel. And so Daniel and his buddies are naturally faced with this issue. Is it time to just fit in and sort of win in Rome, only win in Babylon, do what the Babylonians do, or time to shop for a new God? It, it would make sense to do that. 
And early in the book, it's clear that God was still the same God as when Daniel was back in Israel, and he was still performing miracles, and he was still in control. And you see God in control over pagan empires as well as Israel. So that's reinforced that God has control of history. That's chapters one through six, and you get to the latter chapters, six through 12, and they answer questions about Israel's future, and especially the world empires that would control Israel and control the Middle East. And Daniel's questions to God throughout these last chapters are not about the world, but they're about what's gonna happen to Israel and what's gonna happen to its temple and the worship of the true God. Chapter 12, verse one, is clearly talking about Israel, not Christians all over the world. So that's why I said the end may include us because we like to think, oh, you know, we're really important, you know, we're, we're the Western world. But when you look at prophecies in the Bible, they really kind of ignore us. It, a lot of it's centered on the Middle East and that's the case here. Chapter 12, verse one is clearly talking about what happens to Israel, not Christians all over the world, although we're wrapped into it and we may be involved in it. Here's my point. This is apocalyptic, end of the world stuff. We, we may be a part of it, Canada, the US may be a part of it, China may be a part of it, Russia may be a part of it, but from a biblical standpoint, much of the prophecy about the end of the world has to do with what happens to Israel and the neighboring countries around it, and that's sort of the focus of this verse and this chapter as well. It's about Messiah, Israel's king, the son of God returning. And the nations that we're gonna talk about in chapter 11 that are involved in all of this discussion don't include us at all. It includes the world of the Middle East. So I just wanna say that as a little backdrop, and I'll pick that up a little bit later. Second, the Middle East will return to a time of massive regional conflict with a future as certain as the past. Now, stay with me here. I wanna spend a little time talking about chapter 11 because this is incredibly important. Conservative scholars, now when I say the word conservative scholars, I'm talking about people who believe this is God's word, that it has predictive elements in it, that God spoke about future events, that it's inspired by God, he had something to do with its writing. Conservative scholars believe that Daniel wrote Daniel. You're saying, like, thanks, Paul, that was really deep. No, it's a big deal, because much of Christianity doesn't believe that, and you may not know that. Much of Christianity is not conservative. Much of Christianity is dominated by liberal scholars who would simply, they study religion, they study Christianity, but what they would say is, you know, no, it wasn't written by God, it's written by men, therefore it doesn't have a predictive element, and it was not written in Daniel's lifetime. So conservative scholars believe Daniel wrote Daniel before his death. Interestingly, Jesus seems to agree with this, because Jesus quotes Daniel chapter 927 in Matthew 24, and he credits it as from Daniel the prophet. Now that seems to be Jesus giving Daniel credit for the book. So Jesus is taking the conservative scholar position. That is huge in my opinion, because no matter what, you know, people look at the Bible, they get concerned about certain things, and, and they say, I just really wanna know just what Jesus says, not what anyone else says. Well, Jesus says a lot of stuff too that makes us all nervous. Jesus gives Daniel credit for this. 
He validates an early writing of the book by Daniel and attributes it to Daniel, which means if Daniel wrote the book, which Jesus seems to acknowledge, Daniel lived from about 620 BC to into the 530s BC. So that's Daniel's life. You know, if he lived to 90, it'd be 620 to 530. Not sure he quite made it that long. So that means that chapter 11 is all future prophecies, which I'm gonna talk about in a moment, that Daniel saw the future from God. Liberal scholars believe Daniel wasn't written by Daniel at all because they can't stomach the idea that God has that level of control over everything, that he's that supernatural. They would say Daniel had an unnamed author who wrote the book in 165 BC and just called it Daniel. And the reason they do this, their concern is this. Daniel describes in great detail, incredible detail, and I want you to read this sometime in the next couple of days. Read chapter 11 and maybe grab a conservative commentary along with it. Daniel describes in great detail all kinds of historical events from 540 to 165 BC. It is a detailed history of Israel and the world that part of the world, for hundreds of years, and it's given ahead of time. So liberal scholars don't believe in the God of the Bible as supernatural. They don't believe in miracles, don't believe in the virgin birth, don't believe in the resurrection. And if they admit the predictive nature of Daniel, that God told Daniel everything that was gonna happen for about 300 years ahead of time, they might as well admit all of it and actually acknowledge Jesus as son of God and serve him but that's not the goal of liberal Christianity. The goal is take a few cute things that Jesus said and try to live a good life. Daniel 11 is the most exhaustive and detailed prophetic chapter, perhaps in all of the Bible. And I just give you a few examples of this. And again, you can read through this later. Daniel 11 verse two predicts how many Persian kings will rule before Persia clashes with Greece. Well, that's pretty specific. I believe it mentions three, plus the one that was reigning at the time Daniel wrote it. So God sees the future, and through Daniel basically says, and there's gonna be three more kings, by the way, and then you're gonna have a clash with the nation of Greece. In verses three and four, Daniel describes the rising of a great ruler and then the kingdom that that great ruler oversees will be divided into four. Well, who might that be? History here, Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great was a ruthless conqueror, and he conquered massive territory, before which I don't think anyone else had conquered that level of territory. And actually, Daniel chapter, chapter 11 mentions that it's not gonna go to any of his descendants. The kingdom will be divided into four and not go to any of his descendants. Alexander the Great died when I think he was like, 30 or in his early 30s, he didn't have any children. This is predicted ahead of time. It's Alexander, his kingdom was divided into four and he had no kids, none of it went to his descendants. In verses five through 12, uh, Daniel details future problems between two of four of these you know, four empires that are be, you know, become, uh, come out of the Grecian empire. And then he starts focusing on the king of the north, one of the four, and the king of the south. The king of the north would be sort of the Seleucid Empire, what's remaining a part of the Greek Empire. King of the south is Egypt. And the reason he focuses on the king of the north and the king of the south, hang with me, hang with me, 
is because these two kingdoms kind of control Israel. That's why it matters, because they're the ones that dominate that territory. They're the ones who are fighting over Israel. Verse eight alludes to the recovery of a massive treasure. Isn't that interesting? In chapter 11, verse eight, Daniel predicts the recovery of a massive treasure that was originally stolen by the Persian Empire, and now it's recovered by Egypt, by the king of the south. If Daniel wrote Daniel, he's telling us long into the future about a recovery of a national treasurer by a future king. Verses 13 to 19. Verse 18 alludes to Cleopatra's marriage to a Seleucid king and the political implications. Doesn't say Cleopatra, but talks about a woman who will marry. Verse 21 to 35 begin to allude to a great persecution against the Jewish people. Now I want you to start th- stay with me here. A great persecution against Israel. Incredible detail is given about somebody that we know as Antiochus Epiphanes. He was a Greek or Seleucid king. He sought to wipe out the Jewish temple worship. He sacrificed, now you see the words in Daniel, the abomination of desolation, Some of that's talking about Antiochus. He sacrificed a pig on the altar in Jerusalem in 165, 68 BC, somewhere in there. Sacrificed a pig on Jerusalem's altar. Sacrificed it to Zeus. And it caused a war with the Jews. Some of you know there was a few boys, a few Jewish boys who kind of, you know, they probably were good hunters and then all this stuff was happening. They kind of had enough. They're like, okay, boys, we got to take this away from animals and start dealing with these Greeks. You know what their names were, these brothers? The Maccabees. And they led Israel in a regional war against this king, Antiochus. These are details There are details in all of this that both conservatives and liberals agree on. In other words, when liberal scholars who don't believe in the inerrancy of Scripture, they don't believe God wrote it, when they read chapter 11 of Daniel, they're like, oh, we agree with the conservatives. It's all these people. It's all these kings. It's all these events. They don't disagree with that. They would just say, God could never predict that. It's not not divine. Somebody just wrote it in 165 B.C. after all of this had happened. They just pulled out their history books and their scrolls, and they wrote it all down. It is incredibly detailed political history from 540 to 164 BC. If it's history written by an anonymous source, it doesn't mean a thing. Who cares? If it's prophecy written beforehand by Daniel, which Jesus acknowledges, it's almost unbelievable in its exactness. Shockingly detailed which would mean God is really in control of history. Like at a level that you and I don't even think about or imagine. He has this. And his ability to see and control the future is just as specific and detailed as his ability to see and control the past, which is why I said the Middle East will return to a state of massive regional conflict but a future as certain as the past, if God predicted all this stuff. And and it all happened with that level of exactness, the number of kings, the recovery of a treasure, Cleopatra, others, world leaders that he sees in the future, it would mean that God sort of sees the future 
Not as, you know, maybe he, he operates outside of time in ways that we can't imagine with our human brains. I don't understand it. And I don't know how he can do that and not just make us all pawns on a chessboard, but I really do believe we have free will. God controls the world in ways we cannot imagine. And if that's true, then he controls the future in the same way. Third, and here's where it gets into end times stuff. A new king of the north will create a great tribulation against Israel. All right, now, listen to me here. Through verse 35 of chapter 11, which we didn't read, until now, chapter 11 has had clear fulfillments in the lives of, you know, the Persian Empire, Greek leaders, you know, uh, Alexander the Great, and then the king of the north, the king of the south, which come out of Alexander's empire. There were four leaders after Alexander. Two of them are talked about in scripture, king of the north, king of the south. And it all makes sense because liberals and conservatives all agree we can identify all these people, we can identify all the historical events. And then in verse 36 of the last chapter, through verse 39, it starts to be harder to assign these things to events that took place in the past. The scholars start saying, you know, this kinda could be Antiochus Epiphanes, but it may not be. And then you get to verse 40 to 45 and you clearly start going into the future. And that's what I want to read for you. If you've got your Bible open yet, just look at chapter 11, beginning in verse 40. At the end time. Okay, now we're not talking about during 165 BC anymore. We're flipping forward into the future. And prophets did this. They would, they would sort of see a, a series of mountains, but what they couldn't see is, you know, where one peak stopped and then there was a valley and another peak. They didn't always, they didn't see how time would flow. They just saw events in the future. So clearly this is leaping forward sort of to the next mountain range and Daniel didn't see the gap in between. But there's a gap between the life of Antiochus and what's talked about here. At the end time, the king of the south, which is Egypt, will collide with him. And the king of the north, which would be some sort of resurrection of part of that old Roman or Greek empire, the king of the north will storm against him with chariots, with horsemen, with many ships, and will enter countries, overflow them, and pass through. There'll be some sort of regional conflict in the Middle East in which these, the existing now countries will reform an alliance. He will also enter the beautiful land, Israel, and many countries will fall, but these will be rescued out of his hand, Edom, Moab, and the foremost of the sons of Ammon. Then he will stretch out his hand against other countries and the land of Egypt will not escape. But he will gain control over the hidden treasures of gold and silver, over all the precious things of Egypt. The Libyans, the Ethiopians will follow in his hands. In other words, the sky will sort of take over that part of the world. But rumors from the east and from the north will disturb him. He will go forth with great wrath to destroy and annihilate many. He will pitch the tents of his royal pavilion between the seas and the beautiful holy mountain. Yet he will come to his end and no one will help him. And then don't think chapter division because there weren't chapter divisions when these scrolls were written. Now at that time, Michael, the great prince, the archangel who stands guard over the sons of your people, over Israel, will arise. And there will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, everyone who's found written in the book, will be rescued. Then he talks about the resurrection. My point is, He's clearly leaping forward in his view into the future. Daniel's vision moves from Antiochus to a future king like Antiochus. In fact, many scholars call Antiochus what we call a type. 
he sort of, he reflects a future version of himself. Antiochus Epiphanes, who sacrificed a pig on the altar in Jerusalem, is viewed as sort of a type of the Antichrist who will similarly try to stomp out religion in Israel in the future. So Daniel's vision moves from Antiochus to a future king of the north. We see that person in other parts of Daniel, not called by this name, but in other parts of scripture as the beast or the Antichrist. Daniel talks about him as well. The little horn, I believe, from another chapter. The Middle East is going to become an absolute regional war zone, more than it is today. What everyone fears will happen in the Middle East will happen in the Middle East. The modern nations and territories that control the ancient described lands are going to be in this war. Now, I know that since we're like, you know, in the West, and you know, I kind of come from that little country to the south of us. It's, it's a superpower. It is a superpower. Nuclear arsenal, it could destroy the world many times over. And China has the same. But from a biblical standpoint, the author of scripture here doesn't care about the US or China. Now I'm not saying the US and China and Russia won't be involved in all, I'm not saying that. I'm saying this is a conflict which viewed, is viewed as the conflict around the nation of Israel a new king of the north is gonna create a great tribulation against Israel. There will be incredible suffering. And then, what chapter 12 is introducing, Messiah will return and restore the world, and the reign of God will commence. Now what's interesting about this, because when you read it through, you say, I don't see anything about Messiah. And that's a really good observation, thank you for saying that. Jesus isn't mentioned here. Michael, as his angel sort of is his proxy. But stay with me, because there are all kinds of other passages that describe exactly this time where Jesus is extremely involved. And there are other passages in Daniel where it clearly talks about Messiah coming at about this time. But actually in this vision, it doesn't use the word Messiah, but clearly it's what's happening. Look at this chapter. Chapter 24 of Matthew, where Jesus, I believe it's called the Olivet Discourse. Then there will be a great tribulation, such has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will again. Doesn't that sound like Daniel's language? And if those days had not been cut short, no life would have been saved, but for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Jesus is talking about what's going on in the same time that Daniel's talking about here. Zechariah 14.3, Zechariah sees Jesus' future, Messiah's future in this situation. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle, that Jesus will be involved. There's a, there's a verse in Revelation 16, 16 that also refers to this. They gathered them together in a place in Hebrew which is called Armageddon. And when you see Jesus coming in the book of Revelations, he's tatted up. For those of you who don't like young people with tattoos, king of kings and lord of lords. And he's not messing around. Revelation 19, 19 through 20. I saw the beast, the Antichrist, the kings of the earth, and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse, the one with the tattoo, known as Jesus. Some of you, are gonna, some of you can't even move on in the sermon now. I, I know what you're thinking. That grandkid of mine, I, I just don't like that sleeve tattoo he's got. You know, Jesus, king of kings, lord of lords. All right. And against his army. 
And the beast was seized, and with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshiped his image. These two two were thrown alive into the lake of fire, which burns with brimstone. This is the end of the world stuff. Jesus is involved in this. He talks about Michael, the garter of Israel, the garter of God's people. And before all this culminates, I want you to also see something else that is consistent through multiple authors in Scripture, and that is sort of the timing of how this takes place. Remember a little bit ago, we talked about Daniel's 70th week in in Daniel chapter 9. We said there were 70 weeks that were predicted for God's people. And Daniel breaks it up into three groups. He says there's first going to be seven weeks. And he starts out, you know, about 530-something or 540-something, seven weeks until Israel is sort of rebuilt. And if you go from seven weeks, which is seven times seven years, weeks was just sevens. It didn't mean weeks of days. It meant 70 sevens, 490 years. The first 49 years, interestingly, ended up when Israel had her walls and defenses restored. Then he talks about 62 sets of seven years. And when you do the math, talks about Messiah coming, it's probably the week that Jesus sort of announced his messianic claims. He was baptized, he began to be uh, the Messiah, he began his ministry. What's interesting is 69 weeks are used up there. There's one last week, and it's what we call, throughout scripture, the Great Tribulation, seven years. We get that from Daniel, chapter nine. Now what's interesting about that is when you look throughout scripture, you're gonna find comments not about those seven years, but about the last three and a half years. So look at Daniel 9.27, stay with me, stay with me. Daniel 9.27, he will confirm a covenant, this is the Antichrist, with the many for one week, that would be seven years. But in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. He, like Antiochus, is gonna stop worship in Israel. And on the wing of abominations will come the one who makes desolate until a complete destruction, one that is decreed, gushes forth on the one who makes desolate. It's talking about Jesus defeating the Antichrist at the end of that seven years. But three and a half years into it, in the middle of the week, things get really bad. You have relative peace for three and a half years, then a horror show. Daniel 12, 11 and 12 alludes to this last half. From the time that the regular sacrifice is abolished, the middle of this last seven weeks, and the abomination of desolation is set up, he turns himself into God basically, there'll be 1,290 days, that's about three and a half years. Blessed is the one who is patient and attains to the 1,335 days. Blessed is the one who survives the last half of this tribulation period. Revelation 11:2. two, you're gonna find another allusion to this. Leave out the courtyard which is outside the temple, don't measure it because it has been given to the nations. They will trample the holy city For what? 42 months. How much time is that? That's three and a half years. You see this over and over and over throughout multiple biblical authors. Jesus is coming back. He's coming back after a time of great tribulation. It won't be pretty. Order will be restored. Righteousness will reign. Couple of apps. Again, I would encourage you to read chapter 11 sometime this week and just see the specificity of the nature of that. God's control of the past is shockingly specific and detailed. He's got the future too. The whole book of Daniel, and I've been, I've been preaching for 30 years plus or minus since I was two. I've never seen anything like the book of Daniel. 
If Daniel's written by Daniel, as Jesus affirms, the level of involvement that God has in history is shocking. The level of control over the rise and fall of nations. For thousands and thousands of years, the people of God had found great comfort from that. We're now in a time in history where people get mad at God about it. Because if God has that level of control of history, people are frustrated with the world we live in. It's always been a comfort that God is in control. But now we look at God's control, we're like, well then how come this is happening? How come this is happening over here? Because he also is allowing free will, and that's us, and we're the problem. He's got the future. Second, and this is how God views things we may not, the world is hopelessly broken. God's vision of the future is perfection, not improvement. You know, a lot of people look at the world around us and, and you know, there's a part of Christianity that believes that there is no, you know, Daniel, all that stuff's not gonna happen. They, they're called amillennialists. The world is getting better and better and better and eventually Jesus is gonna come back, but it's gonna be so much like the, you know, like the kingdom of God. You're not gonna notice much of a difference. It's called amillennialism. It's a, it's a hopeless theological viewpoint because I don't see the world getting better and better. Do you really? See that in our connection to the civilized world, we're better people. Tim Keller says, years ago I read an ad in the New York Times that said the meaning of Christmas is that love will triumph and we'll be able to put together a world of unity and peace. In other words, we have the light within us and so we're the ones who can dispel the darkness of the world and we can overcome poverty and injustice, violence and evil. If we work together, we can create a world of unity and peace. Can we? One of the most thoughtful world leaders of the late 20th century was Vaclav Havel, first president of the Czech Republic. He had a unique vantage point from which to peer deeply into socialism and capitalism. He wasn't optimistic that either would by itself solve the greatest human problems. He knew that science, unguided by morals, would give us the Holocaust, it did. He concluded that neither technology nor the state nor the market alone could save us from nuclear degradation. Pursuit of the good life will not help humanity save itself. Nor is democracy alone enough, Havel said. A turning to and seeing of God is needed. The human race constantly forgets, he added, that he is not God. See, we're never gonna fix this world. It is hopeless. I love Canada. I do. I wanna retire here. I think it's gonna be a little hard to convince my wife to retire permanently here, but I'd love to retire here, visit the States, but not retire in the States. Calgary is just ranked the number three city in the world to live in. It's awesome. But there are also laws in Calgary that said if I read Romans chapter one, I might get fined, and if I don't pay the fine, I can end up in a Canadian prison. I'm not making this up. Because you can't talk about certain aspects of sexual behavior. And Romans chapter one is very defining. So there are pastors all across Canada that literally do not know legally if they can read Romans chapter one from the pulpit. Not trying to be dramatic, it's true. And we live in the third best place in the world to live. But it's not paradise because we're still stomping out God and his word. I'm from a little country to the south where the Supreme Court just ruled that abortion on demand it goes back to the states. It's not a federal right, it goes back to the states, which be just like Canada sending it to the provinces instead of making a federal law. You had thought it was the end of the world, that we cannot at will just 
take human life in the womb. That's supposed to be the, you know, one of the shining examples of democracy in the world. There's riots in the street because we can't kill babies. The world is not getting better. Somebody has to have a greater vision of what it can be. And I dare say the only one who can do that is the one who's coming back with a giant tattoo on his thigh, king of kings and lord of lords, and it's gonna be his way. Somebody needs to have a greater vision of what this world can be. Many of us, and many of you have seen this, so I'm gonna end with a, a show that you've seen, Fixer Upper, Chip and Joanna Gaines, all right, you with me? I'm not seeing a lot of hands here. Okay, all right, all right, whatever, all right. Chip and Joanna Gaines, and when we see that show, Fixer Upper with Chip and Joanna. We asked two questions. One of them is, how can she see the future like that? What, what a gift, how can she see the future? And you know what the other question we ask is? How on earth did Chip get her? I mean, am I right? I'm like, what is going on in Waco, Texas? Like, was she having a really bad year and kind of dipping pretty deeply into the male pool? Or was he really that, you know, like the confident guy who just said all the answers? Anyway, that's, how did he get her? You know, it's funny because one time I was with my son, Jonathan, and we were doing some errands, and he asked me the same thing. And I don't know what I had said before. He's like, Dad, how did you get Mom? <laughs> so I guess I'm Chip. But what's amazing about Joanna is... She's just got that gift where she can see something ahead of time and see it in all of its perfection and knows everything that needs to be in place. And she sees it when she looks at the brokenness of a dilapidated property that some of us would just assume bulldoze. See, only God has that kind of vision to recreate the world that he intended. Only God can see that. We look at the world around us, we're like, yeah, we had, you know, we had a good life. But a lot of the world doesn't look at its life that way. Again, we live in the number three place in the world to live. A lot of sub-Saharan Africa doesn't look at the world that way. A lot of the people who don't know if there'll ever be grain shipped from Ukraine to keep their prices from doubling and tripling who don't have the money to afford groceries at double and triple the price and might be starving in the next two years, they don't see the world the way we see it. God sees the way this world needs to be and only he can fix it. And third, live like it's gonna happen soon. See, that's how we're supposed to live. I don't wanna be the guy who sets dates for the second coming or the rapture. Daniel doesn't deal with the rapture. It's another theological point I'm not trying to deal with today, but I don't wanna be the guy who, you know, is setting dates for the second coming, who sees a little stuff going on in the Middle East and like, hey, it's now, it's today. Sees signs everywhere, sits on the roof waiting. because often we're misleading people. I mean, if you ask me when Jesus is coming, I'd say, you know what, we're supposed to live as if it's today. It could be 500 years from now. It could be, and it could be today. But it could be 500 years from now. Don't be shocked if it is. You won't be here to be disappointed. But the scriptures tell us to live in a state of readiness. To live as if it's now. 
I don't know when Jesus is coming back. And yes, I would agree that things keep forming more and more uh, into a pattern that would seem to mean, you know, we're a lot closer than we were 2,000 years ago. I think we could all agree with that. The math works in our favor. We're closer than we were 2,000 years ago. But the message of the New Testament is be ready. Know Jesus. Know who he is. Have him in your life in a real way by trusting in him as son of God, savior, and Lord of your life. Be living like God wants you to live because there will be accountability for how we live. And be helping others to be ready for that day. The whole motivation to be in ministry for somebody who does what I do, the whole motivation is people are gonna stand before Jesus someday. We just wanna help them be ready for that. But it's not just the motivation to maybe be a pastor, it's the motivation that all Christians should have. It's, it's our commitment to the world around us to help people to be ready for Jesus. God, we thank you for your word. And we see in Daniel how clearly you are God. You are running this world. You do it, as we've said in other weeks, sort of in enemy territory because Satan is the prince of this world as well. You're a sovereign God, but you allow a lot of things, including our free will, to complicate what you otherwise would love to see. But I pray that we would have a growing confidence that you're in control and a growing understanding of what you want to see in our lives and in the world around us as we walk in this world imperfectly, waiting for a better future. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon. We hope you found it connected you to the God of truth and love who we worship and serve at Bethany Chapel. If you have any questions or want to connect to any of our pastors, please go to our Bethany Chapel app and choose Connect or go online to bethanychapel.com and click Come. Thanks again and God bless you.